Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Morrissey Movement, where movement is medicine. Uh, This is episode three, so the title of this episode is called gear and gallbladders so hopefully it's going to be another good show i appreciate everybody downloading and listening to my previous podcasts and again if you feel like you can give a rating please do so so we can reach more listeners before we get started i'm going to just give a quick little shout out to our sponsor of the week which is called dad life tees that's d-a-d-l-i-f-e-t-e-e-s i'm actually the cfo of this company my brother and i formed a little dad life t-shirt company so if you are a dad or you have a dad and you would like to get a t-shirt feel free to go to our website at www.dadlifetees.com there's quite a few pretty cool products on there that you can get your hands on so anyway we'll go ahead and get started with the show today so i'm going to start off with talking about gear first even though in the previous podcast i've done the medical aspect first um So today I'm gonna review some of the different fitness type of gear that one could purchase and use. Uh, The ones that I'm choosing to talk about today are the Garmin watches. I'm gonna go over a few of the different kinds of watches and all the different functions that you can uh, get on these type of equipment. I'm also gonna talk about the Apple Watch, um, the Aura Ring, and also the Whoop. Um, So I have actually used all of these products except for the whoop so I am just going to basically talk about what it entails but I have no personal experience and again these are all my own entities and not my entities my own uh, experiences with these products so I'm going to talk about kind of the differences in them and give you my opinion at the end of which ones I feel are better Um, so I'm going to start off with the Garmin watch so the company at Garmin Limited was established back in 1989 by a guy named Gary Burrell uh, with someone else named Min Kao, K-A-O, uh, as makers of GPS devices for aviation and automobiles. Uh, they later decided to expand their GPS for sports and wearable technology to the point where they are best known for their activity trackers and smart watches. The reputation has grown uh, over the last many years uh, to where they compete with more established companies such as Fitbit and Apple. Fitness watches have a number of fitness sensors and features for recording steps taken, monitoring your sleep, monitoring your heart rate, and many more things. So some of the Garmin watches that are going to kind of be briefly talked about today is the Forerunner series, the Vivo Active series, the Vivo Move HR, the Vivo Fit, and the Phoenix. Uh, So one website that I had was looking at these different things. They rated the top five Garmin watches as the Garmin Forerunner 35, the Garmin Vivo HR GPS smartwatch, the Garmin Vivo 3 GPS smartwatch, the Garmin Instinct rugged outdoor watch with GPS, the Garmin Vivo Move HR Sport hybrid smartwatch. Um, And I'm actually gonna add one, which is the Garmin Phoenix 
Uh, I actually have the Garmin Fenix 6 Pro, which has a solar charger on this as well. So I'm gonna give a few brief um, different little qualities of each of these watches. So the Garmin 5 Forerunner 3, I'm sorry, 35 watch, it'll check your heart rate from your wrist during the day and the night, making use of the Garmin Elevate wrist heart monitor technology. It has GPS, which tracks your speed, distance, and the place where you run. It has features such as smart alerts, live tracking, music controls, and direct and automatic uploads to Garmin Connect, which is Garmin's tool for tracking your fitness activities. It tracks your movement throughout the day, such as the number of steps you take, the calories that you consume, and gives you the reminder to move if you're idle for too long. It automatically uploads your information to the Garmin website to display your progress and also let you set your fitness goals. So that is the that is the uh, Garmin uh, Forerunner 35 watch. Sorry about that. The next one I'm going to just briefly talk about is the Garmin Vivo Active HR GPS smartwatch. So this has a high resolution touchscreen that can read even in the sunlight. The screen resolution is 205 by 148 pixels. This can be used for tracking biking, running, and swimming, even without a smartphone. This allows you to select the watch face from a wide range of styles. You can also download apps from the Garmin Control IQ store. It also sends you alerts to your smartphone. The next one is Garmin Vivo Active 3 GPS smartwatch. The physical dimensions of this device is 43.4 by 43.4 by 11.7 millimeters. It'll fit on the wrist sizes from 127 to 204 millimeters. The screen resolution is 240 by 240 pixels. Uh, it has more than 15 preloaded preloaded GPS and sports apps. It can also measure oxygen consumption and has a stress monitor. The next one is Garmin Instinct Rugged Outdoor Watch with GPS. Uh, this is built to be like a military grade specifications and has thermal, shock, and water resilience to withstand the elements. It provides smart notifications and has global satellite navigation capability. It also features a three-axis compass and a barometric altimeter and a number of global navigation satellite systems. It can track your heart rate activity and stress, reminding you to keep up your pace. Then the last one that was reviewed on the website that I chose to use is the Garmin Vivo Move HR Sport Hybrid Smartwatch. It's more of a traditional watch face but gives you fitness information and alerts by means of the touchscreen. It checks your heart rate, monitors sleep, counts steps, and measures calories burned. It gives you stress alerts over the course of the day, reminding you to take a break from the action. It also allows you to share data and compete with other people via the Garmin Connect app. So the final verdict based off this website, uh, talking about Garmin Fitness watches are a popular and convenient innovation to make fitness training easier. Before making a decision, you need to determine what you really need and what options that you really want. And I'm gonna add to the final part of this, which is the Garmin Phoenix 6. I feel it was the most data um, tracking watch. Uh, there's multiple different preloaded uh, workouts that are on here. There's a walk, there's run, there's uh, like a CrossFit style hit. There's treadmills, there's bike indoor, bike outdoor, there's open water swim, there's pool swim, uh, there's strength, there's cardio. You can also build multiple workouts within the, the Garmin Connect app itself. I have a free, a, a few preloaded workouts on here that I will use from time to time, um, especially some different runs. You can actually pre-program it so it'll tell you if you want to do intervals, it'll tell you to stop, it'll tell you to start, it'll keep track of your of your distance, and then 
once you're all done, you can go into the Garmin app and it does a whole lot of different things such as stride breakdown. It'll tell you the percentage of the amount of time you're using your right leg versus your left leg. It'll give you your lap intervals. So it'll give you your average mile time. It'll give you your specific mile time if you're doing multiple mile runs. Uh, it'll um, talk about the elevation, how high you went up. It'll give you temperature. It'll give you your average heart rate. It'll also track your different zones of running, which is zones one through five, which I'll cover on a different podcast in the future. Um, so me personally, having used an Apple watch, which is I'm going to review here in just a second versus the Garmin watch. I feel the Garmin watch is has much more data than the Apple watch actually tracks. Um, I also use a Garmin um, Pro heart rate strap. So if I'm going to go out doing any type of running or any type of other cardio events, I always wear my heart, my chest strap because it's more accurate, especially if you're running in heart rate zones and it just keeps track of more data for you. I feel that it's better in my opinion. Um, so the Apple Watch, which I was also an Apple Watch user for quite some time until I recently switched to Garmin within the last year or so. Uh, so the Apple Watch has a ton of different functions also, and I'll go through some of these um, that I had retrieved from the internet just so I didn't forget anything. So the heart rate monitor, um, it's both has an optical and an electrical heart rate sensor. Um, pairing these two offers great accuracy anytime you need it. The Apple Watch will constantly monitor your heart rate and let you know if there are any abnormalities, either high or low beats per minute. Um, there's an EKG feature on there, which will actually take a small rhythm strip of your Apple Watch. Um, so if you're having any type of symptoms, which is like pounding in your chest, or it feels like your heart is skipping beats or having palpitations, um, you can actually do a little EKG rhythm strip. Um, this data can actually be sent to your doctor if you had it set up with them to make decisions about your health. Now, again, this is not by any means replacing any type of medical grade equipment to monitor your heart rate, but this is something that can be helpful for people, especially if they do have a history of palpitations in their heart or a condition called atrial fibrillation. So the Apple Watch is designed to pick up on this only. It will not actually analyze any other cardiac rhythm such as ventricular tachycardia or supraventricular tachycardia or SVT or any type of those other medically alarming heart um, irregularities. Uh, there's also a, the Apple Watch 6 added a blood oxygen monitoring uh, so you can actually monitor the oxygen level in your blood which is measured in a percentage in your heart in your uh, red blood cells. Um, it's fairly accurate but again does not take the place of any type of medical grade monitoring devices. Um, there's also a really cool feature called fall detection. So if you have a sudden fall while wearing your Apple Watch, it'll send a notification to a designated SOS contact on your phone to let them know that you might need help. Moreover, if you don't respond after 60 seconds, the watch will automatically call the police and share your location. Though this could also be on the con list in case you set it off by accident. Um, I actually read an article about a year ago about a physician that his father was in his 70s, I believe, and he was out mountain biking somewhere in the mountains, and he actually did have a fall, and the Apple Watch actually saved his life by detecting this and sending a alert to him and also to the police where they were able to come and find him after he fell off his bike in the mountains. So that's pretty cool also. Uh, sleep tracking. Um, there's a separate sleep app on your on your Apple Watch that allows you to 
create a bedtime schedule that'll reflect your sleep goals. Um, however, you do have to wear the watch overnight, uh, which can be good, it can be bad. You can track your night's sleep. Um, I actually feel this is not that great of a feature and I'll go into more detail about this in a little bit, but it is an option. However, with the Apple Watch, you do kind of have to charge your watch every night. So it would make it difficult to monitor your sleep. Um, also, you have to wear your watch while you sleep, which I find is kind of annoying. Uh, so that's just another option for you though. Um, supposedly, this will not um, affect me, but you can track your menstrual cycle with the Apple Watch for those people that do menstruate. So again, I do not. Uh, the Apple Watch has an app to monitor your cycles. It'll record symptoms like cramps, headaches, and fatigue, and you can use this information to build up a prediction um, when your symptoms will return in your ovulation window if you're trying to conceive. Monitor noise levels. There's a built-in microphone on the Apple Watch. It'll listen to ambient sounds and levels in decibels via the noise app it'll tell you if anything goes beyond what is healthy for your hearing if you're using headphones a lot it'll automatically turn the volume down at a point in time where continuing with the volume at the level you had could start causing damage there's a hand washing feature which you can have a 20 second hand wash counter which is um, on the apple watch also uh, thanks to the coronavirus the apple watch can detect if you're started to wash your hands and will encourage you to continue for a minimum of 20 seconds it'll also remind you if you haven't to wash your hands shortly after arriving home which is kind of a cool feature some of the other smart features on the apple watch um, phone calls you can actually receive and or even make phone calls from your apple watch without being near your phone uh, on the cellular models with Wi-Fi modes you would need your phone in your pocket or have it nearby to make calls you can also read and reply to text messages including emails um, which is kind of cool you can use voice to text preloaded responses or if you have the patience using the pad you can type or write responses one letter at a time which is again in this day and age kind of annoying the other thing you can kind of do, you can do with your uh, with your Apple Watch is you can do Apple Pay. Uh, so there's a contactless payment option that's even more convenient. Um, since Apple Pay was released, you don't even have to get out your phone out of your pocket. You can simply call your card up on your watch display, hold it near a card reader. Though this does require the passcode to be enabled. Another cool thing you can do with your Apple Watch is you can unlock your MacBook if you have one. Um, so it does pair nicely with Apple products. Um, I actually have a MacBook, but I have never used this feature, so I don't know how well this works. But for other people, it actually works really well, which is kind of cool. Um, if you have Apple TV, you can use your watch as an Apple remote to run and um, turn on your Apple TV. Uh, iPhone camera remote. You can also use your iWatch as a remote switch for your iPhone. So if you want to take a photo, you can set up a timer so it'll automatically go off so you don't have to set that up on your phone. Uh, you can also monitor the battery life um, on other devices. If you have an Apple ecosystem, uh, you can actually monitor your devices like AirPods or Beats headphones. Uh, it'll do it via Bluetooth and give you the battery status. There's also another kind of cool feature which is a walkie-talkie feature. You can pick a friend that has an Apple Watch and set up the walkie-talkie feature to send voice notifications automatically that'll play on the other's watch unless they have a silent feature set up. You can tell your person uh, any type of messages that you would like to do if you choose to do so. You can also control smart appliances in your home from your Apple Watch. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you have an Opal, I'm sorry, a HomeKit enabled 
devices at home, you can control it with your Apple Watch. Things like smart plugs, lights, heating, blinds, cameras, garage doors, you name it. This is another cool feature that you can do. Uh, one of the probably coolest features of the Apple Watch is the find your iPhone. Um, if you're like me and you set your phone down and you have no clue where you left it, uh, you can use your Apple Watch to ping your phone and it'll flash and make noise so you're able to easily find this, um, which is really nice. There's an always on display so you can set it up to where your Apple Watch is always on, but you can also set it up to shut it off after a certain amount of time if it is inactive. If your kids actually have an Apple Watch, which none of mine actually do, but there's a school time feature that you can actually set it up um, for hours of school so that it's not disturbed and can't distract them and you, it completely limits the features in the app so they can have access to, but you can still send them a text and get a hold of them if needed. Um, you can also get the time in more ways than just visually use either the traditional visual form or sound and, and haptic. Of course, using the sound gives you a chime. Uh, the lateral vibrate in a certain pattern with no sound and without needing to wake up the display. If you happen to know Morse code, uh, so does the Apple Watch, so you can actually have it tell you what time it is in that fashion. Um, you can also use Siri um, with your Apple Watch with built-in commands, so you can do virtually anything with Siri. Um, if it's set up to your other devices. You can connect to a Bluetooth speaker um, with your Apple Watch. Um, <clears throat> so if you happen to have music stored on your phone, or I'm sorry, on your Apple Watch, you can actually play it through, via Bluetooth speaker. Um, you can also see in the dark with this. There's a, um, an LED flashlight that you can turn on on your Apple Watch. Um, it's pretty neat. If you happen to be in a room without your phone, you can turn on the bright LED light and be able to see what you're doing. Um, there's also location sharing, which the Apple Watch you can use to kind of see where you are on the map. If you share your GPS location with a friend that also has an Apple Watch, they can see this on their Apple Watch maps. Um, there's also a compass. There's also an elevation uh, built-in altimeter to kind of tell you where you're, if you're ascending or descending. Um, it's also water resistant. Um, so I believe it's up to 100 meters, if I remember right. Uh, so you can go swimming with this and also can, can you can track your swimming if you're doing some type of workout. So those are kind of all the pros that are listed with the Apple Watch. The cons, um, it is expensive. Um, you know, it runs around $400. Uh, it only works with iPhones. So if you're a Samsung person or Google phone or something like that, you really can't use your Apple Watch for that. Um, the battery life, it's roughly 17 to 18 hours, so you do have to charge it every day, um, which is sort of annoying. Um, you can get interchangeable bands. They are somewhat expensive um, with that. So, so that's the Apple Watch. Like I said, I was a big Apple Watch user for a while. Uh, however, I have switched to Garmin. Uh, the Apple Watch was nice uh, to, it communicates with your iPhone way better than the Garmin does. Um, it streams music, you can do all the texting and everything like I listed above. Uh, so the Garmin, the Garmin uh, Phoenix 6 that I have, it does not locate your iPhone very well. Streaming music, this is not very good for this either. So those are kind of my biggest complaints about the Garmin watch is that your compatibility with your iPhone is not near as 
sexy and nice as the iWatch is. So if you're not really a big data person and you love it to function with your iPhone, I would say an Apple Watch is probably better in this instance. But if you're wanting way more data on your exercise and workouts, I would say Garmin is superior to this. Now, another thing I'm gonna cover today is the Aura Ring, which I actually have also. Um, I have probably had the Aura Ring for approximately year and a half. Um, I did buy the generation two when it, when it was, um, was my first Aura Ring and they reached, recently upgraded to the uh, Aura Ring generation three, which is a little bit better. Um, so basically the reason to have one of these is it is the best sleep tracker on the market from all the research that I've done and viewing the other options out there. Um, so it really analyzes your sleep very well and it is fairly on point determining when you do fall asleep. Um, I've checked it in the morning and I was like, wow, that's really accurate of when I fell asleep. So the battery life lasts about two to four days. Um, I probably charge mine once a week maybe. Um, if you're looking for an activity tracker, uh, it really is not the best for tracking activity. Um, for instance, when I had my generation two watch uh, or my ring, um, it told me that I met my activity goal for the day. However, at the time I was mowing my lawn on my rider mower. So it detects movement, but it was not detecting actual work. So anytime I work out, if I'm gonna be lifting or running, I usually take my my ring off. Um, I don't wanna scuff it up. It is a little bit bulky. So if you do a lot of barbell work, which I do, or doing pull-ups or other type of, uh, any type of um, resistance training, um, I usually take it off just because I don't want to get scuffed up and it does get in the way. Um, so the, the functions of the ring, you know, it is a ring, so there's no LED screen that'll give you any information like the time or your heart rate or anything like that. So you have to use the, the Aura Ring app on your phone. Um, so when you do look at your Aura Ring app, it gives you three different um, activity or uh, measurement um, applications. So you get a readiness score, an activity goal measuring, and also a sleep score. Um, so it does monitor your heart rate 24 seven, as long as you're wearing your ring, it'll track it during the day and also at nighttime. And it'll give you the differences on different graphs that you can view. Um, the new Aura Ring 3 is supposed to have an improved workout heart rate. But again, I said, I always take mine off. So I have not really evaluated this as in detail there's also a restorative feature this is actually kind of cool i haven't used it quite as much but it's kind of a mind body spirit function so you can go on the app and you can choose the explore option and it'll give you different types of meditation cycles um different sounds you can you know listen to like waves crashing or rain or something like that to just kind of make you relax um uh, the new Aura Ring has actual seven temperature sensors on it, so it'll more accurately track your body temperature. Um, again, it also has an ovulation cycle tracker, which again, for obvious reasons, I have not used this, um, but supposedly it's pretty good. Uh, it'll also track activity and you can enter what activity you engaged in if you do choose. So if you do wear your ring and you end up working out, it'll say, hey, there is a new activity that has been sensed. So you can choose to enter the details of that if you wish. I typically kind of ignore this and do not do it. Um, but also if you do lay down and for a nap, I'm not sure what the cutoff is that they warrant what a nap is, but if you happen to lay down and fall asleep for anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple of hours, it'll say nap was detected, which is kind of cool as well. Um, so the feature, uh, so when you do, um, the thing that you do is you sync your ring every morning. Um, 
So what you do uh, before I go into that, so the other features of the readiness score that it'll calculate is something called HRV or heart rate variability. Um, this is basically a beat to beat measured interval. Um, I'll go into this in another podcast. I'm not gonna go into this today, but it's kind of a lot to talk about. Um, and supposedly it's got about a 98% heart rate variability accuracy and a 99.6 heart rate accuracy um, on the ring. So future models may even be able to detect oxygen levels in your blood. However, I still kind of question whether how accurate that is or not. But um, so I'm going to go into more detail of the readiness score like I just began alluding to. So every morning when you get up, it's best to sink your ring first thing. Um, so yes, you have to do it every morning, but I've kind of made it as part of my morning routine. So I typically will get up, go into the kitchen, start a kettle of water on the stove for my coffee because I do pour over coffee which I can talk about later if anybody really cares what that means and then I do a, a sink my ring it takes approximately 20 seconds or so um, so once it's synced uh, you'll see a lot of data on the screen um, so I'll kind of go through all those different entities so when you pull up your readiness score it'll give you on the very top of the screen it gives you a running kind of total of your um, of your lowest heart rates during the evening on a little graph function. Um, the uh, And the readiness score is a number score. So the higher it is, the better that it is. So on average, if you're around 75 and greater, it's considered a good score. So the other thing at the top of the app that you'll see is your resting heart rate average, your heart rate variability, like I alluded to before, your body temperature average and your respiratory rate. And then you can click on the, the each individual um, body temperature and the respiratory rate and you can kind of just click on those and it'll give you more of an in-depth um, kind of look at what your trend has been and then again your readiness score is an overall number so for me this morning my readiness score was a 78 which is considered decent um, it'll give you your resting heart rate your heart rate variability your body temperature it'll say how good it is your recovery index um, which is basically a measure of how long it takes your heart your resting heart rate to stabilize during the night so if you're getting good recovery your heart rate stabilizes during the first half of the night and then at least about six hours before you wake up leaving your body to recover so things that can affect your recovery index can be alcohol consumption heavy meal before bed or late exercise because it'll speed up your metabolism and keep your heart rate elevated so that's another way you can improve your index on that um, your sleep it'll give you how good of sleep you had your kind of the three um, uh, indicators it'll give you is optimal good and hey pay attention you need your quality of sleep isn't very good and you need to focus on that also sleep balance it'll basically kind of give you um, your balance over the last few days to kind of see how you're doing on that mine is very variable depending on my week um, previous day activity it'll kind of talk about that um, it'll give your physical activity the day before which is another key factor of your readiness score um, and then your activity balance it'll give you that so and then if you scroll down on the app it'll give you your heart rate over the entire evening it'll tell you when you fell asleep it'll show on a little squiggle graph and looks like like an EKG of your heart rate variability it'll give you your minimum and your maximum for that so then if you move across to the next issue which is the sleep um, portion of the analysis it'll give you um, a sleep score which obviously the higher the better it'll give you the total amount of hours and minutes of sleep it'll give you your efficiency of sleep which basically it'll say um, 
the percentage of time you spent asleep versus awake in bed and accounts all the different cycles of sleep which i'll go through here in a second um, it also gives you your restfulness which is uh, you know basically do you wake up a lot do you toss and turn in bed do you move around in your sleep um, it also gives you your percentage of your rem or your rapid eye movement sleep and your deep sleep um, and then also it gives you a bar graph of your light sleep and your deep sleep so it'll give these different colors and it'll 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 demonstrate how well you slept um, also latency which is basically the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep at night um, ideally it should be about 15 to 20 minutes of within lying down if you're falling asleep within five minutes of laying down it shows that you can be overly tired or if you happen to have to work 24 hour to 36 hour shifts like i do sometimes it'll show that that's lacking um, in efficiency and then it'll also give you uh, your heart rate and your hrv and then you can cycle over to activity so it'll give you an activity score it'll give you your your calories for the day how far you've walked total calories burned it'll count your steps um, it'll, you can give alerts to get up and move every hour, so it'll kind of tell you, hey, get off your butt and get to moving. Um, your training volume, your training frequency. So there's a lot of things that this will factor into. And on based off your readiness score, uh, it may give you the recommendation of, hey, maybe you shouldn't work out today because you kind of had a rough day, but it looks at your, again, your sleep, your activity from the day before, your heart rate variability. So there's a lot of factors that go into this. So um, I feel this is a, fantastic um, addition to your arsenal if you really want to track your data like I like to do. Um, it just kind of gives you a sense of how things are going. So to me personally, between the Garmin watch and the, and the Aura Ring, this is the optimal ways to measure data if you are interested in that. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is the Whoop, which I have, I know what it is. I'm familiar with it, but I've never used it. Excuse me, had to drink, take a drink of my uh, Rockstar Recovery there. So I will um, talk about this. So um, the Whoop looks like a watch, but actually there is no face or or um, screen on this. So it's just kind of a blank strap that you put on your wrist. Um, it's all internal monitoring. So how is it different from other things? Um, the key differentiation between the Whoop and all the other devices is that there's sensors that collect data approximately 100 times per second and 24-7 as long as you're wearing the strap. So comparing to like the Apple Watch, it kind of only collects heart rate data at high frequency during workouts. Um, otherwise, um, it samples your heart rate every few minutes. Uh, the same is true for many of the other fitness trackers, um, including like the Fitbit and other things, which I actually did not talk about. Um, by collecting such a ton of data, the Whoop can actually detect minuscule changes in your body, uh, how it responds to exercise, rest, and stimulus throughout the day and night. Uh, I, th I believe the newest Whoop is the 4.0, which has an optical heart rate sensor with green LED lights that shine through uh, the blood vessels under the skin. and. Um, there's also four different photodiodes that'll collect and reflect light. Uh, the technology behind Whoop's heart rate sensor is called photoplasmography or PPG, and it enables the Whoop to measure your heart rate and your heart rate variability as well. Um, so this is, I guess, an ups upscale from the Whoop 3.0, which was an older strap that only had two LEDs and only one photodiode. So again, I can't compare this because I've never used this. Um, another thing that it does, it has a pulse oximeter, which can measure the amount of oxygen in your blood. Um, supposedly it can uh, reach the deeper blood vessels and differentiate between oxygen carrying and non-oxygen carrying hemoglobin, uh, which is where the oxygen molecules are carried that's in your blood cells. Um, I can talk about that in a different talk as well. Um, 
Aside from unlocking the pulse oximeter monitoring, the pulse ox are also more reliable when you use on on darker skin tones, pigmentation, and tattoos. So a lot of times it has the, the light has to be able to shine down through. So if you have like like the times when you go to the the ER or something, they'll put one of those the pulse ox monitors on your on your finger it measures it through your your fingernails so if women come in with or men come in with uh, really dark shades of fingernail polish it may be difficult to read your your um, blood oxygen levels there's also a skin conductance sensor which keeps tabs on how your skin conducts electricity um, it's kind of important improving the reliability of sleep tracking because the skin conductance changes when you fall asleep in certain stages of sleep so it also is a skin tracker it can also monitor monitor your skin temperature um, there's also something called a 3d accelerometer and gyroscope um, so basically it'll detect any type of movement so it's supposedly more of a um, a more of accurate workout detection um, especially you know a lot of crossfit athletes will wear these uh, so since they're always doing multiple different types of movements um, so other than collecting a bunch of data can also correlate changes in your core biometrics such as your resting heart rate and heart rate variability and sleep so then it can kind of actually kind of adjust to how you are so it's sort of a you know an individualized functional um, device um, battery life, according to the manufacturers, approximately five days. Uh, there's also an app, just like everything else, that you have to put on your phone and it'll display your data. Um, so you do have to open up your app to also do this. So um, the only other downfall to this, I feel that is kind of um, a con, is you have to have a membership and a subscription to Whoop. So it's like a monthly fee to use it, um, which is sort of another reason why I just was never interested in getting one. Um, even though I am a huge data nerd, I didn't want just to wear another weird um odd object on my wrist so like i said before um this is the review this is my own personal opinion so i um, mean you know, i do not have any disclosures as far as i don't i'm not sponsored by any of these companies i just give my own personal insight um, on these so again my my opinion aura ring is awesome for sleep tracking garmin is way better for data um, however it does sound like it is compatible to whoop maybe one day i will end up getting a whoop but as of right now i have no plans on getting one so that's the gear portion of the talk, which, wow, we actually are already at 34 minutes. I did not plan on talking this long about gear, but hopefully this is helpful for people. If you're like, man, I don't know what to get. There's so many things on the market. Basically, what you need to do is you need to figure out what's important to you. If you just want a, a step tracker, that's all you really care about, you can totally save a lot of money by not having to get any of these things. You can just get a, a basic Fitbit or even a very low-end Garmin, um, but it just kind of depends on your needs. So. So from here, I'm gonna actually transition over to the medical aspect of this, um, which I alluded to in the, in the title, which is about your gallbladder. So this is one of the more common procedures that I perform removing people's gallbladders. So I just kind of wanted to talk about, you know, what the heck is a gallbladder? What does it do? What happens if I don't have it anymore? And so on. So, so the gallbladder itself is a little pear-shaped organ that when it is a normal size is about approximately the size of two of your thumbs that sits underneath the liver on the right side it's kind of sits in the middle of the liver sort of delineating between the left and the right sides of the liver um, its main function is acts as a, as a garage or a storage vessel for bile um, from your for your body when it needs to help break down food especially higher in fat and protein so bile is a digestive type juices for a lack of better words that is created and made in your liver and the liver will secrete it at different intervals during the day so your gallbladder will become filled with this fluid um, 
to have on hand when you need it. So what happens is, is when you eat food, your stomach turns it back and forth and begins to break it down with the stomach acids that are in your stomach. So what happens is, is then it goes down um, <clears throat> towards the end of the stomach and beginning to get into the first part of the small intestine, which is called your duodenum. So there is an enzyme that is secreted from these cells, which are actually called the enteroendocrine cells that are in the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum. And the enzyme is called cholecystokinin or CCK. So it's basically a peptide hormone of the GI tract that is just designed to help break down fat and protein. So when your body needs it, it goes, it sends a signal to your gallbladder. And when your gallbladder is working well, it actually squeezes and empties out and dumps all that bile down into the first part of the small intestine and then begins breaking down the food so it can be absorbed in your, in your small intestine, which is the main function of your small intestine to absorb all your nutrients. So what happens when your gallbladder doesn't work well, or if you're having pain or having problems, um, what are some of the indications that you may see? So you may notice most commonly some food intolerances such as every time I eat greasy or fried or fatty foods, you can have nausea, you can have vomiting, you can have pain in the right upper quadrant kind of underneath your ribs on the right or burning in your chest. Sometimes the pain will go around to your shoulder blade on the right side. Um, sometimes the pain will wake you up at night. Um, so there's a lot of warning signs that your gallbladder could be a problem that you may need to get evaluated for possible removal. Um, if your gallbladder becomes in acutely inflamed or infected, this is what's called cholecystitis. So basically cholecyst means gallbladder, itis means inflammation. So this can be caused by a variety of reasons also. Most commonly, you can have a, a big rock in your gallbladder called a gallstone. And what can happen is, is it'll act like a ball valve on your gallbladder, rolling over the opening and not allowing bile to escape. So each time your gallbladder can tracks and it squeezes what will happen is that stone will roll over the opening of the gallbladder duct which is called the um, bile duct or the I'm sorry the um, the um, cystic duct and um, so every time your gallbladder squeezes the stone traps everything and so your 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 body tries to say hey we need help so it'll start you know, sending more signal to the gallbladder and it'll kind of just squeeze and kind of cause this gnaw this gnawing type pain um, and this cramping in your right upper quadrant. Um, so that can sometimes happen. So, uh, you know, if you do have gallstones, this may be an indication and you have the symptoms that you need to have your gallbladder removed. However, just because you have gallstones does not mean that your gallbladder has to come out. So, um, you know, once in a great while, people come to my office, they're like, hey, I've got gallstones. And I'll ask them, does it bother you? They're like, nope. Then I would say, all right, if there's no other reason why that we should take your gallbladder out, let's just leave it alone until it becomes a problem. Um, so a gallstone is basically just a hardened deposit of digestive fluid or bile that can form in your gallbladder. Um, they range in variety of sizes from a little grain of sand to as large as a, a large egg or a golf ball. Um, some people just have one stone, other people have multiple stones. Um, the majority of the stones that are formed in the gallbladder are made up of cholesterol, but there's also what are called pigmented stones, which are composed of bilirubin and other bile salts. Uh, I would say about 80, 85% of the time they're made up of cholesterol. You can also get what's called biliary sludge or bile sludge, which is actually like thickened bile, kind of a consistency of motor oil. So it's sort of a, the transition between um, regular bile and a stone. Um, the bile is usually kind of a watery substance in nature. So 
one entity of gallbladder disease is usually a stone, uh, but the other entity you can have, which is called biliary dyskinesia. So basically what happens is, is if your gallbladder just looks completely normal on ultrasound or on CAT scan and um, there are no stones that are seen, um, this might be, but the reason you might be getting sick is that your bile, your gallbladder is not emptying appropriately. So um, what can happen is almost, almost like a little cough in nature when it's given that signal, that CCK signal, it'll be like, yeah, I'm not doing nothing today. I'm just going to give you a little bit. So um, that may be another indication to get your gallbladder removed. So uh, basically what happens is if you end up in the emergency room or if you go to your family family practice provider, or if you get referred to a general surgeon, um, having abdominal pain, um, what I typically do is I'll, you know, I'll take a complete history and physical. And if it sounds like this might be gallbladder in nature, if nothing has been done, what I typically start with is a gallbladder ultrasound. So we'll refer you to radiology. You'll go to there as an outpatient. You'll lay on a table to put some warm jelly on your belly and they'll use this ultrasound machine that's, you know, similar to find out if you're pregnant or not. So sort of different modes of detection though. And they'll look at your gallbladder. So the things that I look at as a surgeon, I like to see how thick the gallbladder wall is. I look to see if there's stones in your gallbladder or not. I also look to see if there's any fluid around your gallbladder, which may indicate an acute inflammation or infection. And also look to see how big the common bile duct is. So the common bile duct is the main bile duct that drains the liver. So the gallbladder actually has a little tiny tube called the cystic duct, which I talked about earlier, where all the fluid from the gallbladder will empty into a bigger tube that empties down in the first part of the small intestine, which then this is where all of the food gets broken up. So. Um, when you go to get an ultrasound performed, uh, they'll look at all of this and then I'll get a report and I also look at the pictures. So what I'll do next is if the gallbladder looks completely normal on ultrasound, then the next step what I'll do is I'll refer someone to another test which is called a HIDA scan. So a HIDA scan, which is HIDA, um, is a function test of the gallbladder. So what'll happen with this in a nutshell, it's a nuclear medicine test. You'll go in, you'll get an IV. They'll infuse you with some sort of a dye contrast type of material. It'll go up inside the common bile duct. It'll then light up the two main branches off the common bile duct, which is called the left hepatic and the right hepatic duct. And then it'll also go up into the gallbladder um, via the cystic duct. So it'll kind of see how well the gallbladder fills up and then the tech will give you an injection of basically a synthetic cholecystokinin or that CCK. And then what'll happen there is it'll, there's a, it'll monitor how well the gallbladder empties and you get what's called an ejection fraction, which is something similar. Um, most people hear about that when they have an echocardiogram to see how well their heart functions. Well, this is to see how well your gallbladder functions. Um, so you get a number and, uh, so for whatever reason, the number they chose that shows you have a normal function of the gallbladder is 35%. So if your gallbladder function is 35% or greater, um, then this is considered normal gallbladder function. So if I get a report saying that your gallbladder functions less than 35%, then this may be an indication to have your gallbladder removed. So this is diagnosed as what's called biliary dyskinesia. Now, sometimes the number can come back as normal. I've seen a HIDA scan that comes back at like you know, 40 to 50%. However, sometimes the test will reproduce your symptoms that you were having that may have brought you into the emergency room or your family practice provider's office. So if that is completely, if the test causes you to feel sick like you did before, this may be an indication to have your gallbladder removed also despite having normal quote unquote numbers. Um, 
And there's a, a newer entity that has came out of the last couple of years actually called biliary hyperkinesia. So this basically means in a nutshell, the gallbladder functions too well and it squeezes and contracts way too hard. And this is considered anything over 75 to 80%. So I actually have probably, I would say about 10 or 11 people in my practice over the last few years that I've taken their gallbladders out, even though traditionally we were taught that anything over 35% is considered normal. I have taken the operating room and removed their gallbladders. And I would say all but one of them was completely resolved with their symptoms after this happened. So, um, now the tricky part is, um, despite doing a ultrasound and a HIDA scan, and these all come up as normal, uh, based off of the tissue that the gallbladder is formed from, you know, we, as you're developing as a fetus, uh, they all kind of come from a similar area um, in the body. So sometimes these symptoms can be overlapping and be confusing. So what else could this be if the gallbladder is completely normal? Um, this could be like gastritis or an inflammation of the gallbladder, or I'm sorry, of the uh, stomach lining. It could also be what people know as GERD or gastric esophageal reflux disease. Um, they could have gastric ulcers. You could have inflammation of the first part of your small intestine called duodenitis. You could have pancreatitis. You could have like a celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity or some sort of other digestive issues with the first part of the small intestine you should also have issues with your esophagus you could have a hiatal hernia which is a where part of the stomach herniates up into the chest um, so that's why sometimes gallbladder workup is confusing because not everybody reads the textbooks of giving us all the easy signs and symptoms that would trigger us to take out your gallbladder so for me i'm a fairly conservative surgeon so if i'm not 100 percent sure that it's your gallbladder i'm not going to take it out because i don't want to do a surgery just because i can because um, this may not make you any better. So um, so that's kind of the stepwise process that I go through in my office with my patients um, or in the emergency room, depending on the setting. Um, so if we get to the point where, okay, now, yes, I do need my gallbladder out. What can I expect? What is the, what is the step? So how does this happen? So, um, so what happens is, is you'll show up at the hospital. We do these a lot of times on an outpatient basis. Most of the time you'll come in and go home the same day. Uh, I typically tell people plan on being there about half a day between being getting there in the morning, getting your IV, waiting for surgery, depending on what, what order you are in in the process of the surgery for the day. Um, then you'll go back, you'll get put to sleep. Um, you will be on the ventilator and having a tube in your throat during the operation because you actually get a medication that will actually paralyze your abdominal wall muscles. That way it makes your abdomen relax and it makes the surgery able to be performed. Um, so once you're asleep on the ventilator, we usually paint your abdomen down with either a chlorhexidine type solution or a betadine type solution. And then we put all uh, the um, sterile operative drapes to cover your abdomen. Um, and typically you'll get four cuts on your belly. Um, one around your belly button area, depending on the size of your torso. You get a slightly larger incision that is underneath your breastbone on the top of your abdomen and then two underneath your ribs on the right side. So we'll put a, a laparoscope or a camera inside your abdomen and blow your abdomen up full of CO2 gas. That gives us more room and allows us to work and do our job laparoscopically. Um, so once we get in there, we use another grasper and find the gallbladder and lift it up over the liver. So once this is exposed, sometimes there's some tissue stuck to that or adhesions or scar tissue that we have to remove to be able to perform the operation. Uh, so once this is completed, 
and the gallbladder is exposed, there's always some fatty tissue that covers the tubes that go into the gallbladder. So there's two tubes. There's one called the cystic duct, which I talked about earlier, that drains the gallbladder. There's also an artery that gives it its blood supply. So I strip all, we strip the tissue off of that to expose both structures. And then we put these little titanium clips to occlude both of the duct and the artery, and then use a pair of scissors and cut between both of those. And then there's a few different types of instruments you can use to remove the gallbladder off of the liver bed, and then put it in a little Ziploc bag and pull it out through the up the larger hole on uh, underneath your breastbone. So once the gallbladder is removed, we pass that off and they send that into pathology and they'll chop it up and look at it, you know, looking for cancer, looking to see why your gallbladder was causing your problems, see how big the stones were, etc. Um, so if this all comes out as planned, then I'll, I always go back in and relook at the liver bed to make sure there's no bleeding, make sure there's no leakage of bile. I also take a, look, a good look around to make sure nothing else looks concerning. Do you have more scar tissue? Is there, you know, an unsuspected cancerous mass that we found upon um, going in for your surgery? And then once it's done, we take all the little ports out of your abdomen and then release all the gas the best that we can. I typically use sutures that'll dissolve into the skin. So when my patients wake up, they just have a little bit of a medical super glue, which is called Dermabond to cover up the incisions. And then you'll go to the recovery room. You'll be there for approximately an hour where they monitor your vital signs and you go back to the, the preoperative or the postoperative wing. And then you'll wake up from surgery. You gotta make sure that you're tolerating oral pain medication, tolerating some sort of liquids and then you're released to go home. Uh, I typically tell my patients the first couple of days are the roughest, you know, we're, we're typically making four stab wounds on your abdomen. So kind of changing position is what really causes the most discomfort. So going from lying to sitting and sitting to standing is usually the roughest part of that. Um, so once this is all done, uh, I typically see my patients in the office in a couple of weeks to see how they're doing. Um, you know, um, that's pretty much it. So the risks of the procedure, which I always go through before my surgeries, is bleeding since you're getting a knife put on your skin and since we're removing an organ. There's also risk of infection, um, but we always paint your belly down with surgery soap. Um, there's also risk of injuring any of the organs inside your abdomen, so the bile duct system, the liver, the small intestine, the colon, the stomach, uh, that require another surgery to repair super rare but you know we always have to talk about the possible risks of the procedure now if the gallbladder can't be removed laparoscopically um, sometimes we do have to do an old school open procedure uh, which is where we make a larger cut on your on your belly underneath your rib cage and go down and remove it the old-fashioned way and you end up having to be in the hospital for three to five days to recover from that operation but um, so once it's done, you know, what, what can you expect afterwards? So the most common side effect of gallbladder surgery is diarrhea. Um, typically this is a self-limited, you know, uh, entity anywhere from three to six months. I'll tell my patients this can be normal. A lot of times you'll eat and you'll have to go to the bathroom right away. Once in a great while, you just have lifelong diarrhea. After every time you eat, you have to go to the bathroom. So again, this is why I like to make sure we're taking the gallbladder out for the right reasons. Um, I typically recommend my patients to be on a lower fat diet afterwards. Um, watching salad dressings and oils, basically using food that or food items that makes everything taste better, you know, cheese and butter and things like that that's higher fat content because your body's got to figure out how to function without a gallbladder. So your liver has to figure out over time to kick out more bile during the day to help you break down your food. So, and it's different with everybody. You know, I basically tell people just kind of start off with really bland food. And then after a few weeks, start adding things in to see how you do with that. Um, so, uh, but yes, you can live without your gallbladder because you know this is one of the most common organs we remove um, from people's bodies. But 
But anyway, I just, you know, that's my, that's my show for the day. I just thought I would talk about these two entities since they're both things that I, you know, do a lot of, you know, as far as, you know, I have the gear that I wear about every day and, you know, taking out gallbladders is something often that I do. Um, so, you know, thank you again for listening. Please, if you have any uh, questions or comments, please feel free to email me at themorrisseymovement at gmail.com and please give a rating which you feel is appropriate for the show. That is very helpful and I appreciate everybody listening. So remember, get up and get moving.